Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual abuse, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 18-year-old Christina Beard grimly trudged through the psychiatric hospital. She stopped at the door to a small room and took a deep breath before entering. She never knew what to expect. Her mother, Celeste, sometimes acted bubbly and energetic, like a teen herself. But when she was in a bad mood, everything changed. She screamed and threw things. Sometimes she hurt herself. 18-year-old Christina was terrified of her and for her. This time, when Christina crossed the threshold, her mother smiled brightly in good spirits. Christina breathed a sigh of relief and took a seat by her bedside. Celeste chattered about her day, therapy, the nurses, and of course, Tracy, her new friend. She couldn't stop talking about Tracy how smart and funny she was. Christina thought it was strange how close the two women had become in just a few days. And Tracy herself was strange. She was intense and high-strung, and she followed Celeste around like a lapdog. It was almost obsessive. Christina wondered if the two women should be spending so much time together when they were supposed to be focused on getting themselves healthy but she knew better than to question her mother. Any criticism was likely to set Celeste off, so Christina remained silent. The friendship was probably harmless, and in any case, Celeste would soon be released. They'd probably never see Tracy Tarleton again. But she was wrong, and months later, Christina would realize that her family's nightmare was only just beginning. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week... We're covering the chaotic life of Celeste Johnson. Celeste's adolescence and young adulthood was marked by one dysfunctional relationship after another. By the time she celebrated her 30th birthday in 1993, she had already been married three times. 
after the string of failed marriages, that same year Celeste met someone who offered stability and comfort at last, a Texas millionaire named Steve Beard. Next week, we'll discuss the tragic shooting that destroyed the Beard's marriage and authority's struggle to build a case against the culprit. Celeste Johnson was born on February 13, 1963. She never knew her biological parents. She was adopted as a two-day-old infant by Nancy and Edwin Johnson. The couple had already adopted one baby boy, Cole, the year before. After Celeste, they went on to adopt two more children, a total of four babies in less than four years. The family lived in the small town of Camarillo, California, about 50 miles northwest of Los Angeles. To outsiders, they appeared to live an idyllic suburban life, but the children later described a home rife with cruelty and discord. Celeste's younger sister, Caress, said, Dad was strange and mom was always troubled. She had psychological problems. It wasn't a happy place, not ever. Their eldest brother, Cole, described a pattern of verbal abuse from Nancy. She told the children, you're with us because your real mother didn't love you. I don't love you either. Cole also remembered nearly dying when he was about five years old. Nancy was giving the children a bath, but when she rinsed their hair, she held them underwater for much longer than necessary. She almost drowned them. Nancy explained away this behavior saying, I'd been taking diet pills and I was under a lot of stress and had insomnia. At the time, I was thinking of a Bible passage to wash away sins, but I never hurt my children. Celeste also described childhood abuse, but from her father rather than her mother. She claimed Edwin molested her and her sister for years, but Caress later said, I don't remember it happening to me. Celeste says I don't want to. Maybe she's right. Both brothers deny witnessing this abuse, with Cole saying outright that it didn't happen. He claimed that their mother Nancy brainwashed the girls to hate their dad. Whatever happened, no one in the family denied that Edwin frequently behaved strangely. Neighbors witnessed him talking to inanimate objects and friends said he visited their homes to steal prescription drugs from their medicine cabinets. The entire family was active in the church, but Edwin apparently developed a fanatical obsession with the Bible, even changing his name to the more biblical Jedediah. Edwin and Nancy's behavior likely had a profound effect on the children who were already vulnerable to psychological distress due to their adoption. Before I cover their psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to a 2015 report released by the Institute for Family Studies, Adopted children are significantly more likely than birth children to have behavioral problems and learning disabilities. Author Nicholas Sill speculated that this may be due to disrupted attachment in early infancy. Zill wrote, 
Attachment theory holds that a warm, intimate, and continuous relationship with at least one adult, usually the mother, is essential for the mental health of infants and young children. Children who do not develop a stable and secure bond during early childhood or have the bond disrupted are subject to both short-term distress reactions and longer-term abnormalities in their feelings and behavior toward other people. As a teenager, Celeste began acting out in violent ways. Her youngest brother, Eddie, recalled, she beat me up and someone in the neighborhood would call the police. The cops were always there, making her stop. Their mother, Nancy, also reported Celeste's behavior to the authorities. In one instance, Celeste broke a window and began destroying the kitchen floors and counters with a hammer. Nancy had police take the teenager away. Celeste spent a week at the Ventura County Youth Facility before she was allowed back home. By 1980, 17-year-old Celeste had dropped out of school and was occupying her time with a love affair instead. She had begun a relationship with 19-year-old Craig Bratcher two years prior. The young teens were devoted to each other, though Celeste's temper caused her to act in dangerous, unpredictable ways when she was upset. On one occasion, they had a fight while driving in Craig's truck. Celeste reached out and jerked the steering wheel, causing the truck to veer off the road and roll over. One of Celeste's best friends said that Celeste laughed about it when telling the story later. Despite their troubles, the couple stayed together. After dating for about a year, Celeste became pregnant with twins. Celeste called the pregnancy a miracle. She told friends that she had believed she was infertile. One friend in particular later found Celeste's comments strange saying, I couldn't imagine why any doctor would say that to a healthy 17-year-old. The whole thing just seemed really, really odd. Celeste enlisted her mother, Nancy, to help plan a small wedding. She and Craig were married on December 6, 1980, a few months shy of Celeste's 18th birthday. On February 6, 1981, twin girls Christina and Jennifer were born two months early. Celeste had trouble settling down with her new husband and two infants. She often left them for days at a time, reportedly staying with friends or other men. But she always returned, remorseful, telling Craig that her behavior stemmed from her childhood trauma. Craig always accepted her back. Despite his tolerance, Celeste sometimes blamed her behavior on Craig himself. She later claimed he sexually assaulted her and broke her arm, but Craig denied this. Their fraught marriage lasted just 18 months before they filed for divorce in 1982. Craig was ordered to pay $300 per month in child support, but Celeste found it wasn't enough to raise the twins on. After her marriage ended, Celeste surrendered her daughters to a foster home, claiming that she couldn't afford to take care of them. The now 20-year-old, who already felt abandoned and unloved by her adopted family, was all alone. Celeste sat in her empty apartment, watching the seconds tick by on the clock. She felt frantic. Nothing worked with Craig. Before, she couldn't wait to be rid of him. But now that he was gone, 
she felt terrified. Even when they were screaming at each other, hurting each other, ruining each other's lives, at least they were together. It was better than being alone. Nothing was worse than being alone. As she thought about going to sleep in an empty bed, Celeste felt a desperate panic wash over her. She jumped up and began pacing around the apartment, trying to shake off the nervous energy rattling through her body. She had to get Craig back, or somebody else, anybody. She needed something to cling to. She needed this feeling to go away. Over the next few years, Celeste and Craig continued to see each other off and on in spite of the divorce. They would occasionally regain custody of their children for brief periods, only to surrender them to the foster system once more. Celeste became pregnant again, but opted to give the baby up for adoption. Craig's mental health deteriorated, and around 1987, he attempted suicide. His family then paid for him to fly from California to Washington State to be near his mother. 24-year-old Celeste relocated to Arizona, where she met an Air Force mechanic named Harold Wolf. In December of 1988, they got married. With a new husband and a stable income, she was able to regain custody of her twin daughters, who were now nearly eight years old. The family of four moved into a cozy apartment near the Air Force Base. Harold said that, at times, Celeste could be loving, wonderful, but for the most part, the marriage was a disaster. They fought constantly. She took out credit cards in his name and racked up tens of thousands of dollars in debt. If Harold threatened to leave, Celeste threatened suicide. The fights were sometimes physical. Harold described moments where Celeste kicked him or dug her nails into his skin until he bled. He wanted to end the relationship, but he didn't know how. Eventually, Harold's military duties solved the problem for him. In 1990, he was assigned a tour of duty in Iceland. The following year, he and Celeste divorced and Celeste sent her twin girls to live with their father, Craig, in Washington. Without Harold or the girls around, Celeste was once again alone and itching to meet someone new. Jimmy Martinez first encountered Celeste at a country bar in Phoenix. 30-year-old Jimmy probably wasn't looking for a serious relationship. The security management firm he worked for had recently transferred him to Austin, Texas, and he would soon be moving away. But when he saw Celeste, he was immediately attracted to her. Celeste later described in a letter how Jimmy managed to quickly sweep her off her feet. She said, I was sitting at the bar when this handsome Hispanic man came up to me and said, I am going to marry you and move you to Texas. All I could say was, okay. Within a month, I moved to Texas with him and four months later, I married him. With yet another new husband and a fresh start in life, Celeste suddenly wanted her twin daughters back as well. She petitioned the court to grant her custody. Craig fought the petition but allowed the girls to visit Celeste in Texas. Christina and Jennifer, now 11, noted that Jimmy and Celeste's marriage already seemed rocky. 
they were constantly at each other's throats. On one occasion, Celeste threatened to jump out of the car while Jimmy sped down the highway. She flung open the car door, but Jimmy yanked her arm before she could leap out. Celeste later called the police and accused Jimmy of abusing her, showing them the bruise on her arm as proof. The girls were terrified by their mother's erratic behavior, but it affected them in different ways. When their visit with Celeste ended, Jennifer was eager to go back to her father in Washington. Christina refused to board the plane home. She felt that her mother needed someone to stay and take care of her. Craig said he tried to call Christina many times, pleading with her to return home. During these calls, he heard Celeste in the background, ordering Christina to tell him that she didn't love him. Celeste and Craig continued to battle for custody of the girls. Eventually, Craig won, but Celeste still wouldn't send Christina back, and she refused to defy her mother. Ultimately, Craig didn't want to push Christina too hard. After a while, he stopped trying to convince her to come back, and Christina remained with Celeste. But having her daughter at home did little to calm Celeste's tumultuous life. She and Jimmy continued to fight. As she had done with Harold, Celeste opened credit cards in Jimmy's name and spent thousands of dollars. Perhaps she realized she would need some income to offset these bills. In early 1993, Celeste took a waitressing job at the Austin Country Club, the most elite private club in the city. It was there that Celeste first met Stephen Beard. They were not a likely pair. At 69 years old, Steve could have been 30-year-old Celeste's elderly father. But he did have one thing that enticed Celeste. He made a fortune as a television executive. He was worth millions of dollars. Apparently, he was just the type of man Celeste had been looking for all along. Next, Celeste moves on from Jimmy to Steve with disastrous results. Now, back to the story. By mid-1993, 30-year-old Celeste Johnson was on her third marriage to a man named Jimmy Martinez. The couple had only been together a few years, but the relationship had already soured. Like her previous marriages, it was tainted by Celeste's erratic behavior, her lavish spending, and bitter, sometimes violent arguments. But Celeste was a woman who relished new beginnings, and she was looking for yet another one when she met millionaire Steve Beard at the Austin Country Club. Born November 27, 1924, 69-year-old Steve didn't have much in common with Celeste. Where she attracted and perpetuated constant chaos, Steve was a conventional, even old-fashioned family man. In 1993, he and his wife Elise were celebrating 45 years of marriage together. But tragically, Elise had been recently diagnosed with brain cancer. Celeste noticed how Steve took care of his ailing wife, later saying, 
I just thought it was sweet how he would give her scotch and stuff when she couldn't talk, you know, like dribbling down her chin. People always say that's terrible. I thought it was kinda sweet. In October of 1993, Elise passed away. Steve felt lost and lonely. He had three children, but they were grown and out of the house. He told friends, I'm the type of person who needs to be married. I need someone to take care of. Just two weeks after Elise's death, Steve invited Celeste to dinner. He took her to an Italian restaurant, then back to his house where the pair sat in the hot tub, sipping vodka cocktails and listening to big band music. Steve knew that Celeste was married, but she told him things weren't working with her husband. She complained that Jimmy didn't get along with her 12-year-old daughter, Christina. Steve listened and was sympathetic. He felt a chivalrous desire to rescue Celeste from her situation. Soon, Steve introduced Celeste to all of his friends as his house manager. He said he'd hired her to do some housekeeping. By that Christmas, it was clear that she was more than an employee. She had left Jimmy Martinez. She and Christina then moved in with Steve. He was thrilled to have a family again and planned to marry Celeste. She had charmed him, but he was still a careful man. He drew up a prenuptial agreement that would grant Celeste $500,000 if they divorced after three years of marriage. If they divorced sooner than that, she'd get nothing. She would fare better if Steve died while they were still married. In that case, she would receive a million dollars. Celeste signed the prenuptial agreement without any objections. On February 18, 1995, 32-year-old Celeste and 70-year-old Steve hosted an intimate wedding at the Austin Country Club. Both appeared ecstatic at the reception. Celeste's daughter, Christina, celebrated alongside them. She hoped her mother had finally found a man who would make her happy. But within a month, Christina's hopes were dashed. Christina soon noticed that while Celeste sweet-talked Steve to his face, when he was out of earshot, her demeanor changed. She griped viciously about him to Christina, calling him names, making faces at him behind his back, and even saying that she hated him. According to Christina, Celeste had only married Steve for his money. And Celeste didn't just badmouth Steve, she was apparently willing to physically harm him. In March of 1995, Christina witnessed her mother crushing sleeping pills and putting them in Steve's food. When questioned, she told Christina that she had dosed Steve because she wanted him to pass out right after dinner. She couldn't stand spending any more time with him than necessary. Christina didn't understand her mother's disdain. She liked Steve. She even agreed to have her last name legally changed to his. But she couldn't bring herself to tell him the truth about Celeste. She was too afraid to betray her mother. Steve apparently didn't suspect his new wife was drugging him, but noticed other signs that their relationship was in trouble. Celeste spent thousands of dollars on clothes, shoes, and jewelry, and hid it all from him. 
He only found out when he got a notice that their checking account was overdrawn. Steve quickly called his banker and moved his money into a new account that would require his signature, cutting off Celeste. Celeste wandered through the department store, stopping to stroke a fur coat here, a pair of pumps there. She sulked. It wasn't fair for Steve to throw a fit about money. After all, he had plenty of it. As far as Celeste was concerned, they had an agreement. She stayed with him, sharing his bed, no matter how much it disgusted her. And she was supposed to get something in return. He was supposed to take care of her. Celeste turned angrily away from the racks full of clothes she was forbidden to buy. Steve didn't understand how mean it was to deny her. He didn't understand how important it was, how satisfying to see something, covet it, and then claim it as her own. It felt powerful. Steve knew all about power. He craved it too. So why didn't he understand this? Why didn't he understand her? Steve put up with Celeste spending until June of 1995, when he happened to visit his safe deposit box. In it, he kept several pieces of jewelry and valuables that belonged to his late wife, Elise. But he discovered that the box was empty. Celeste had taken the items and pawned them. He confronted her, ordered her to leave the house, changed the locks, and hired a divorce attorney. Celeste was so devastated that she checked into a psychiatric hospital, where she stayed for about a week. Celeste's medical records indicate she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and depression at the hospital. The National Institute for Mental Health characterizes borderline personality disorder as an illness marked by an ongoing pattern of varying moods, self-image, and behavior. The symptoms often result in impulsive actions and problems in relationships. According to psychiatrist Grant Brenner, partners of people with borderline personality disorder must develop special skills to meet the needs of their loved ones. He stated, with mental illnesses that affect the way people behave toward one another, especially if they can be attacking and hurtful, more is demanded from the partner. Steve didn't know whether he was strong enough to handle Celeste's problems. When she was released from the hospital on June 25th, he was still considering a divorce, but Celeste didn't want to let him go. She sent him letters, apologizing, pleading with him, and detailing her abusive childhood and difficult past. Steve felt sorry for Celeste. She'd had so many troubles, and he didn't want to add to them. He decided to give his marriage another chance and withdrew his divorce petition in August. Soon after the couple reunited, they decided to sell their house and build a new one on a lot Steve purchased in Westlake Hills, a wealthy suburb of Austin. But as Celeste struggled to make plans for her future, she suddenly received tragic news from her past. Craig Bratcher, Celeste's ex-husband and the father of her twins, had suffered from depression for years. In July of 1996, he died by suicide. 
Celeste took custody of Jennifer and brought her to Austin to join her sister, Christina. Jennifer, grieving for her lost father, bonded with Steve right away. So she felt torn when, like Christina, she witnessed her mother mixing crushed sleeping pills in Steve's food. She also noticed Celeste pouring vodka out of the bottle Steve purchased and replacing it with Everclear, which has a much higher alcohol content. Celeste wanted to make certain her husband spent his evenings passed out and out of her way. Jennifer later said that she didn't tell Steve because she worried he wouldn't believe her. She knew that Celeste would deny it and she could be a very convincing liar. The twins kept other secrets for Celeste as well. In November of 1998, Celeste began seeing her ex-husband, Jimmy Martinez, again. She told Steve she was going out with friends and then met Jimmy at bars or nightclubs. Later, she bragged about these dalliances to her daughters and their friends. She seemed to enjoy shocking the teenagers with vulgar language and explicit details. Although she did try to keep the affair from Steve, he likely had some inkling of his wife's activities. In early 1999, he again began talking over the possibility of divorce with his lawyers. Celeste reacted, as she had in the past, by threatening to commit suicide. One evening, while Steve and Jennifer were out, Celeste pressed a pistol Steve owned to her head. She sobbed to Christina that none of them loved her, while Christina pleaded with her to put down the gun. Christina called the police, who managed to disarm Celeste and take her to a local psychiatric hospital, St. David's Pavilion. She spent the next few weeks there, receiving treatment. During her hospital stay, Christina and Steve attended to Celeste as much as they could, visiting several times a day to bring her meals, treats, and clothes. Celeste complained to Christina about the facility, the food, the smell, the nurses. But there did seem to be one bright spot. Celeste had made a friend. She had hit it off with another patient, a woman named Tracy Tarleton. Within a week, the two women became very close. For Celeste, Tracy provided a welcome diversion from the dreary atmosphere of the medical facility. For Tracy, Celeste became an obsession. When we return, Celeste and Tracy embark on a secret relationship. Now, back to the story. In early 1999, 36-year-old Celeste Beard's fourth marriage to 73-year-old TV executive Stephen Beard was on the verge of collapse. Celeste's spending habits were out of control and she was reportedly cheating on him with her ex-husband. According to Celeste's 18-year-old twin daughters, Christina and Jennifer, their mother hated being married to Steve and only stayed with him for his money. But even if Celeste loathed him, she also couldn't bear the thought of him leaving her. When she suspected he might want out of the marriage, she threatened to commit suicide. After a standoff with a handgun, she was taken to a psychiatric hospital for treatment. There, 
she met fellow patient Tracy Tarleton. The two women bonded almost instantly. 41-year-old Tracy was lonely, vulnerable, and eager for a new friend. Celeste was glad to have someone to whom she could pour out all her frustrations. She told Tracy that Steve was horrible and controlling. She blamed him for her depression and suicidal thoughts. Tracy empathized with Celeste. She had experienced suicidal impulses for decades. Like Celeste, Tracy had endured a traumatic childhood. Her mother, Mickey, was an alcoholic and verbally and sexually abusive. When Tracy was a teenager, she started hearing a voice in her head. It frequently berated her and told her to kill herself. In college, Tracy came out as a lesbian and found support in the LGBT community, but depression still overwhelmed her and she often self-medicated by binge drinking. She attempted suicide for the first time in 1981 at age 24 and was admitted to a 10-week inpatient treatment program. After her release, she joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Tracy stayed sober for over a decade, but in the late 90s, her depression, along with the voice in her head, returned. She relapsed in late 1998. She later said, I wanted to drown out the voice with alcohol. In February of 1999, 41-year-old Tracy called a friend and confessed that her suicidal urges had gotten stronger. Her friend took her to St. David's Pavilion, where she was admitted into a substance abuse treatment program. When the two women first met at the hospital, Tracy found Celeste's behavior flirtatious, later saying, she came on strong. We were both on heavy meds, but even then the attraction was there. Celeste was physically affectionate as well. Hospital staff and visitors noticed that Celeste rested her feet on Tracy's lap and leaned her head on Tracy's shoulders. One day, Tracy said, Celeste followed her into her room and kissed her on the lips. Tracy was thrilled. She was infatuated with the pretty, charismatic Celeste. From then on, the two spent as much time together as they could. But St. David's was not meant to offer long-term treatment. Soon, both women were released. Tracy was accepted into another treatment program at the Menninger Clinic in Kansas, and Celeste returned home to Steve. But before the women separated, Celeste promised she would try to get into the Menninger Clinic as well. After St. David's, Celeste remained unsatisfied in her marriage, despite Steve's attempts to make their home life more stable. In February of 1999, he even officially adopted the twins, Christina and Jennifer, who had grown to love Steve. But none of it was enough for Celeste. Late that winter, she began seeing a new psychiatrist, Dr. Michelle Hauser, who affirmed Celeste's previous diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. She also concluded that Celeste showed narcissistic and histrionic tendencies. According to the Cleveland Clinic, Individuals with histrionic personality disorder have intense unstable emotions and distorted self-images. Their self-esteem depends on the approval of others and does not arise from a true feeling of self-worth. 
they have an overwhelming desire to be noticed and often behave dramatically or inappropriately to get attention. Due to her condition, Celeste probably didn't feel whole unless someone was lavishing her with praise and devotion. During their time together, Tracy had given Celeste the attention she craved. Celeste was desperate to have that back in her life. Dr. Hauser recommended that Celeste participate in a long-term inpatient program for treatment and suggested a few programs in Arizona and Pennsylvania. Celeste countered that she wanted to go to the Menninger Clinic, but Dr. Hauser advised against it because the clinic did not offer a program tailored for victims of trauma. Celeste was initially upset, but when she spoke to Tracy later, she learned that Tracy no longer wanted to stay at Menninger anyway. The program wasn't a good fit. Celeste suggested another hospital that might work for both of them, a facility in Dallas called Timberlawn. Tracy requested a transfer, eager to reunite with Celeste. In the meantime, they exchanged letters, phone calls, and cards. They missed each other. When Tracy's transfer was approved, Celeste paid for her flight to Dallas. Tracy was admitted to the hospital on March 20th, 1999. Four days later, Celeste joined her. The two women requested to be roommates. Tracy later said, the minute the door closed, Celeste kissed me. We were both euphoric. Everything worked out just like we planned it. We were together. The women knew that they had to hide their relationship. If any of the staff suspected they were intimate, they would be separated. But they found it difficult to resist each other. Both Tracy and Celeste were considered high suicide risks, so a nurse was required to check on them several times per hour. At one point, the nurse came in and found Celeste with her shirt off. Tracy was straddling her, giving her a back rub. The nurse told them to stop, and Tracy remarked, Sorry, I didn't know. But a half hour later, a different nurse walked in and caught them doing the same thing. Celeste felt herself relax. It felt good giving in to Tracy's touch. Intimacy had always been difficult for her, but with Tracy, things were different. Affection didn't feel like a chore. It felt natural. Tracy wanted to please her so much, Celeste couldn't help but respond in kind. It was sweet, these stolen kisses and caresses. Celeste imagined this was how lovesick teenagers felt, innocently exploring each other. She had never had that. Lust, sex, tenderness. They had always been tainted in some way by rage, jealousy, disgust, or betrayal. Celeste just assumed that it was impossible to separate the positive from the negative. Love always came with hurt. But maybe not anymore. Over the next few weeks, both Tracy and Celeste participated in the center's PTSD program. However, Tracy found it difficult to focus on her own treatment. She was too distracted by Celeste. 
their relationship often came up in Tracy's sessions with her doctor. She admitted that her feelings for Celeste were special. The doctor admonished her to be careful, saying, trauma abuse patients are prone to making impulsive, life-altering decisions while in treatment. But when it came to Celeste, Tracy didn't want to hold back. She was in love. At the end of April 1999, Tracy completed her program. It was time for her to return to Austin. Celeste continued outpatient treatment in Dallas for a few more months. She attended therapy sessions at Timberlawn each weekday and drove home to Austin nearly every weekend. Steve looked forward to her coming home. He told a friend, all we need is time together to reconnect. But instead of spending that time with Steve and the girls, Celeste often made excuses to leave the house so that she could go visit Tracy. In May, she even accompanied Tracy to a wedding in Atlanta. When Celeste and Tracy weren't together, the two women stayed in contact through phone calls. The following month, Celeste finished treatment at Timberlawn and returned to Austin permanently. While living with Steve and the girls, Celeste frequently showed up at Book People, the bookstore where Tracy worked. From the way they behaved, staff believed the two women were a couple. One night, Tracy threw a party for her coworkers. Instead of hosting at her own house, she used the Beard Family Lake House near Lake Travis, about 25 miles northwest of Austin. Celeste paid for caterers, bartenders, and musicians. The two women acted as co-hosts throughout the night. Many of the guests witnessed them dancing, holding each other, and kissing. At the end of the night, they went to bed together. According to Tracy, Celeste told her, after Steve's dead, we can live here together and wake up together each morning. Despite these displays of affection, Celeste seemed uncertain about their long-term relationship. Tracy worried about their sex life. She felt that Celeste often seemed uncomfortable and distant when they were intimate. That summer, Tracy brought Celeste with her to one of her therapy appointments. In front of the therapist, Celeste admitted she wasn't sure she was a lesbian because she had to drink in order to have sex with Tracy. Still, Celeste enjoyed spending time with her and she couldn't say the same thing about her husband, Steve. To celebrate Celeste's return from the hospital, he had made travel arrangements for a tour of Europe. The trip, scheduled for October of 1999, was meant to be a romantic getaway for Steve and Celeste, just the two of them. But Celeste had no intention of going. She told the twins, I can't spend an entire month with him. This will be torture. Tracy remembered all of the horrible things Celeste had confided in her when they first met at St. David's that Steve was responsible for her depression and that he made her want to kill herself. Tracy was worried. She feared that if something didn't change, perhaps Celeste really would die abroad. And Tracy wasn't the only one afraid for Celeste's life. One morning in September, Christina called Tracy. She was worried about her mother. Celeste wouldn't get out of bed 
Tracy rushed to the Beard's house to see her. Celeste wept. Living with Steve is killing me. Tracy felt lost, devastated. She didn't know how to help. But Celeste seemed to have a solution in mind. She told Tracy, Steve has to die. He just has to. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Celeste Beard's story. We'll cover Celeste and Tracy's deadly plot to get rid of Stephen Beard. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>